The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for the podcast, and my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 255, I think. Sometimes my count is off. If so, I apologize. Just a reminder to please listen to this pod. Uh, a reminder to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating so that Google will help more and more people find us. Also, please go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel and give us a thumbs up on our videos. Again, so that Google will put us front and center so that people can find us and get the messages that we're putting out there. Our messages are of hope and that there is help available. That's pretty much always what we want to put forward. So today we have an interview that at first glance, you might've gone, really, why are they interviewing him? We're interviewing a gentleman named Andrew Zimmern. Now, if you are a big fan of the Food Channel and the Cooking Channel, and the Food Network and the channels that are on TV about cooking, then you might have heard about Andrew Zimmern and wonder why we're talking today. We're not, in fact, doing a cooking class. He is an Emmy-winning and four-time four-time James Beard award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, and teacher. He Andrew Zimmern is regarded as one of the most knowledgeable personalities in the food world. He helped open and run a dozen restaurants. And at the same time, he was also an addict spinning out of control. And after years spent living on the streets, an intervention by close friends brought him to the Hazelden Foundation in Minnesota, transforming his life around sobriety. Andrew took a job washing dishes, Minneapolis Cafe en deux trois. In 1992, he was named executive chef and during his six-year tenure turned un, deux, trois into an award-winning national caliber restaurant. Let's talk today to Andrew Zimmern. Andrew Zimmern, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. You're, is it okay if I call you Andrew or do I need to Please? call you chef? No, Andrew. Andrew's oh, fine. Okay, because I know you're a big time chef, so just checking. It's, I want to make sure it, I... It, we're not in the kitchen. Okay, fair enough. I want to keep my manners in. So, Andrew, tell us, tell us where you grew up, what your life was like when you were young and how you were introduced to drugs and or alcohol and take us down that road. Uh, 1961, July uh mount sinai hospital i came into this world uh and my parents immediately took me out to our summer home and in those days uh moms and babies stayed in the hospital for a couple of days and uh i went to uh you know my father picked my mother up and we drove out to our our house on long island and i was you know four or five days old and had my feet baptized uh, in the salty waters of the Atlantic Ocean on or about the second week in July of 1961. Um, it's, uh, I had a very, very uh, privileged upbringing. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time. Um, I, we, I always felt like the, 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 the well-to-do family at the super rich kids school, that kind of thing. I was never wanting everything. I participated in everything. Um, 
but I went to a, a, an elite private school in New York City and, and was at that school from, uh, you know, well, I, I tried a semester at little, a place called Little Red Schoolhouse, so it wasn't continuous, <laughs> but essentially from the time I was three years old until I, was, until I graduated high school, I was at one school in, in New York City. Um, How'd you end and, up at the Little Red Schoolhouse? Were you just rebelling? My mother was very progressive and wanted ah. my father. Uh, my father was, you know, said, no, he's going to go to this school from beginning to end. Um, and so at one point, in, it was actually in nursery school. I think I did first year at nursery school uh, at one place, went for a semester to Little Red Schoolhouse and then hustled back to the other place. My father did not think that, you know, you know, in interpretive drawing, he wanted me to be taking, you know, uh, trigonometry as a four-year-old. Um, (laughs) but, but I was, I, you know, in a private school in New York city, in that environment, um, people were, um, people were, they were libertines. Um, my father once told me something very interesting. He said, you know, he was brought up in a very strict household. And so he was going to be very liberal with his children. I, and he said that to me with the inference that you grew up in a very uh, liberal uh, environment. So you will be very strict with your children, that it flips generations. And there was something to be said uh, for that a little bit, uh, which I find sort of fascinating. Um, But, you know, my parents, you know, I was, seven, eight, nine years old. And I remember the party where someone put a whole bunch of liquid LSD into the punch bowl. Um, I didn't know why my dad got up on a chair and took a strawberry out of a, you know, some frou-frou drink that someone had made because they were very popular at that time. Uh, and, and, you know, spontaneously orated for 15 minutes, what has famously been called by friends who were there at the time, actually most of whom were dead now, uh, owed to a strawberry, uh, but apparently it brought the house down. Um, did he not know there was LSD or was that just what was done? Most people did not know there was LSD. I could never get the straight answer out of my father. Um, you know, my dad was a, a a rather conservative human being, you know, greatest generation, uh, fought, uh, in the Pacific and the Navy in world war two, uh, came back to Newark, helped build a monster uh, of an advertising agency. I mean, he was that kind of guy, um, larger than life, uh, a real character. I'm a pale version of my dad. Um, <laughs> but, but what is, what is, what's amazing to me is that, you know, at that time, nobody gave, you know, nobody questioned what anybody was doing. Um, these were successful people who, were way more successful than their parents uh, and uh, were really enjoying uh, life despite the tragedies that were being played out every night on the news. Um, at, at the same time, my, my most vivid memory of childhood is, you know, being on the beaches with my parents and surf casting for striped bass and roasting them whole on a fire we built or, you know, the night the man landed on, the, you know, Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the moon we were all at uh, a, a famous uh, playwright's house and uh, I solved my problem. Thank you. Um, a famous playwright's house and everyone's kids were in parents' laps staring at the moon and they had 20 extension cords and everyone had brought their TVs. So there were like 20 TVs with antennas. You didn't need a cable line in in, in in the late sixties and 
So we were looking at the moon, you know, while man was landing on it. You know, there were just miraculous sort of times like that. Yep. And at the same time, there was the normal family tragedies going on. My parents got divorced. My father uh, went to live with a man uh, who would who would be his the love of his life and his life partner. And eventually, when they got married, my stepfather. Um, but you know, my my you know my father's you know boyfriend partner then husband, uh, arguably my most supportive parent as, as a lot of children of divorce in sharing with them that sometimes uh, one of the step parents ends up being your biggest advocate. Um, I may not be here today if it wasn't for the, for the advocacy of, uh, of my stepfather, Andre, in calming my father down and making sure that, you know, insurance was paid for at certain times or that, you know, money for food or, you know, paying for rent for a couple months. So I had a roof over my head was taken care of. Um, but these tragedies that occurred in my life, um, I was non-responsive and non-emotional to because the messages that the, the, my family of origin was not a, a, we didn't talk about those things. Um, yep. It was, it was a different day and time. And anything that was bad that happened in our family, my dad, did the typical greatest generation thing, which is he just sort of stood up and puffed out his chest and said, this is the only time we're going to talk about it. And then we're going to march, keep marching to the top of that mountain. And that worked. I guess it worked for him to a point Um, later in his life when I was, had been sober for quite a number of years and was able to talk to him about that. He expressed some regret Mm -hmm. over it, but he, he, he was of the opinion he didn't have options. Mm-hmm. And I really do believe him. You know, there, there are generational belief systems that no amount, I mean, today, self-help books, mental health, wellness, uh, recovery from all types of isms uh, don't have stigma attached to them the way that they did 50, 60 years ago. That's true. Um, and, you know, my father would be around 100 today. So it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite a, just short of it. Um, uh, actually he'd be 93, 94. Okay. Okay. Um, but it, you know, generationally he felt he didn't really have a lot of options. That was the house that I grew up in. So. Did you try he, that LSD by any chance or did you? Oh, I, I did No, the, the, my first, uh, you know, my solution to, uh, to problems was shutting down and being it. silent yeah. uh, about it and stuffing all my feelings and it came out sideways behaviorally that did not include drugs and alcohol. Um, people who, who are head-ass and overcoat into recovery understand the concept that, you know, we are alcoholics and addicts uh, way before we pick up the first drink or drug. Hmm. Um, the, we've already gone past that point of no return. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that you guys talk about. And I, I'm, I was one of those people when, when real family, tra- by, by the way, my father would come home to my, what was, what became my mother's apartment, our old family apartment, you know, when I was nine, 10, 11, 12, he'd come home every other day after the office, see me do his mail. Cause in those days you actually got mail and it took you a while to go through it. <laughs> um, and he'd have a couple of drinks and then go down to his apartment that he shared with my stepdad or future stepdad. And he would always, he was very proud that by the time I was nine or 10, I could mix him the perfect way he liked his scotch and soda. Perfect amount of ice, 
perfect ratio, topped off just so. Mm. And I always took a taste of it. I loved the smell of scotch because it was the smell of my father's breath kissing me goodnight or giving me a hug. And I could always smell, you know, his however many scotch and sodas he had. Scotch has a very unique aroma. And it it, it sort of was, scotch reminds me of my dad. Mm, and uh, yeah. it was the first drink. I, I would always take a little sip of his thing and it never got me buzzed. I just liked the taste of it, you know? So when I was... The, the point being when real family tragedy uh, befell us and my mother had an accident in a hospital and was in a coma for many months and then had to re- rebuild her, her life several years in a, a, a mental hospital before they tried an experiment at home that didn't really work. And she was never the same person after that. Mm. Um, my, I, I had my solution. I knew what was going to take away the emotional pain that I was feeling. I did not have a voice in my head that said, you know, you could talk about it with other people. Other people told me I could talk about it with them. It wasn't enough to sway me. Uh, Teachers, my parents' friends, other relatives all said, you know, you can talk to us about it. It just must be horrible what you're going through. Uh, Mom in the hospital for years, dad living downtown, Uh, I I learned after completing a lot of trauma work that it's okay to say that my father abandoned me uh, Mm. to live in an apartment alone with a a bunch of caregivers. That was a decision of his that he made. Um, Took me a long time to to put that into perspective. I mean, I was, I'm 30 years sober now. uh, And I didn't learn that until I was about 25 years uh, clean. uh, Doing trauma workshop out at a a center in, in Arizona. Um, one of the, one of the group leaders said to me, well, your father abandoned you. And I got really, I said the, the, you know, fuck you. You know, yeah. he didn't, yeah. he's my hero. Yeah. He said, well, he, he could be your hero and you can still say he abandoned you. I mean, and, and I defended my dad's decision that when I came home from summer camp, age 13, and my mother was in this coma and we had visited her and he gave me uh, on the walk back to the apartment that we're not going to talk about this after today's speech. Um, I went with what he said. He was my, he was my dad. Right. I mean, that was, that was a crucial element of this whole thing. Uh, I did what he did. I stuffed, I didn't believe that there was another option uh, for me. I, I didn't understand uh, that there was another option except internally having tried pot and tried booze. And my cousins one Thanksgiving gave me a glass of ginger ale, but it was champagne and I chugged a bunch of it. (laughs) Oh, you know, and, and, you know, so I knew the effect alcohol could have. Um, And after my father uh, said goodbye to me that day at the house, I was off to the races, but from the trauma standpoint that I brought up before he had he had left that day and said, you know, you're going to be taken care of. There's people here in the apartment, blah, blah, blah. I'll be by every night. And he left and went home. And I never saw that as abandonment until as a parent myself, the, one of these counselors at, at the rear retreat said to me, um, if circumstances were the same, would you do that with your son? And I was like, absolutely not. And the words right. came out of my mouth before right. I could even even pull them back. And right. it was a, an, an emotional 
release for me that was a, a major part of the the last third of my sobriety, that's for sure, was, you know, I'd done so many, you know, fourth and fifth steps and, you know, my father's been on and off them for, you know, years. And I really thought I had put all the dad stuff to bed in the attic of my life in a pretty box <laughs> on it. And, yep. but all that stuff comes back to you, you know, you, you, you're never really done with it. Um, I, I think I finished the last major piece. I, I'm sure as I age some more, uh, bits of my father's uh, and my relationship uh, issues will will come back to 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 haunt me. Uh, but I think the big pieces are over. Um, suffice to say, when I was thirteen, um, you know, we had a charge. At the, this is nineteen seventy four in right. New York City, and you know, we were a well to do Upper East Side family. So, the drugstore, I could call down and just say, you know. Uh, we need someone hurt their ankle. Do you have, you know, some kind of, they would just send five Percocet up and charge it to the house and they would call the doctor's office and, and complete the circle after the pills were delivered. Um, We had charges at the liquor store, you know, Mm -hmm. we had, you know, so I I could call up, you know, for the Zimmern family, we need another scotch of vodka. Oh, okay. And they would just send it over. (laughs) There was $500 in cash. And in, which was a ton of money in those days, uh, in an envelope underneath the silverware drawer for household emergencies. And, uh, you know, I knew it was, everyone knew it was there. The right. people who were supposed to know it was there, the caregivers, those, I don't think they ever knew it was there because there was no need. <laughs> we had a charge at the supermarket. You had a house charge everywhere. Like there was nothing that couldn't get done. Um, and, uh, but I knew the money was there. Right. So, my very first purchase of marijuana, I went in on a quarter pound of it with my friend about four days after I got back from summer camp after I just turned 13. And like any good young business person, because I had to put the money back. Um, we, We sold, you know, three quarters of it. And we made a little bit of money, I was able to return the original dollars. And we had an ounce of weed left over. I was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Um, and the next thing, you know, I'm, you know, I'm in ninth grade, there's girls 10th, you know, I'm, I'm drinking, taking pills and smoking weed. Uh, I try cocaine. I try hallucinogenics and I become a very quickly a New York city garbage head by the time I'm in 10th grade at the end of 10th grade, I start selling drugs. Uh, things are, you know, by the way, I'm also senior class president. I'm, you know, the, I've got the lead in the school play. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm a popular kid. I get into girls. Um, and my dad tells me, uh, summer of my junior year that there's no more allowance. Ah, got to get a job. Okay. And, uh, you can't live at the, the beach house and not work. And I'm like, okay. And I thought all my friends made a pretty stupid decision, uh, by working at the local landscape. Uh, company that was the big thing for everyone because okay. landscape companies needed young limber arms that didn't that could report for work the next day after a day of physical labor uh hauling sod and you know manure building berms planting trees doing all the stuff that landscape companies do yeah. but that was like 5 a.m to 3 p.m i'm like that sucks uh <laughs> you know I, I had grown up seeing the kids that were working at the landscape company 
literally running down the, the hill at the beach at 345, you know, tearing off clothes to dive in the, in the water. I wanted to be on the beach, you know, all day long, smoking joints and flirting with girls. Like that's what I wanted to do. Right. And, um, and I wanted to work in restaurants at night, which my parents expressly forbade uh, you don't drive, you can't bike at night. There's no place near us. We're out by the beach. All the restaurants are back by the town. Um, and I went and got a job in a restaurant anyway, and found some people who lived about a quarter mile away who were, uh, going to give me a lift, uh, home every night. Uh, and you know, that, that quickly dissolved because it became very easy. Once I was working at the restaurant, Hey, can someone give me a lift? Can you pick me up? Going home, we always partied after the restaurant closed. Um, but I worked in a restaurant that that two friends of our family uh, owned, and so I was given a real opportunity to learn and work. And uh, that was this that was the summer of 1975, and I've never stopped taking a, a paycheck that didn't involve a restaurant since. Wow. Um, my drug and alcohol problem just you know, got worse and worse. And the rest of my life just kept cratering. Um, I was able to graduate from high school, get into a good college. Somehow I graduated college, uh, mostly by going cold turkey the semesters after I was uh, asked to take a mandatory leave of absence. Mm. I would go and I would cook in Europe. I would detox from drugs. I would just drink. I mean, I would, you know, I had this little program of my own, you know, you're, I'm young. I'm in my twenties. I, I had a different kind of body uh, than in terms of tolerance and, and what I could do. And, you know, I could do all the things that I learned later were about managing my disease and my addiction. Mm -hmm. And, and I managed it well enough to graduate college uh, and then went right into the, the food business where, because I had a lot of natural talent, I, I had a lot of success um, I, I've spoken to three or four very famous chefs, legends, uh, mm -hmm. who, who fired me after a single day of work in the rest, because they knew what an alcoholic or an addict looked like. I got it. Yeah. And, uh, one very famous chef who shall remain nameless said to me, uh, we joke about it a lot. I see him all the time. Uh, he came up to me after my first day and he said, look, we both know what's going to happen. If you stay here, you're going to become invaluable to me. You're going to be one of the best cooks that we have here. And I'm not going to be able to let you go, but you're going to be stealing from me and you're going to be doing all this other stuff. So we're just going to have to cut it short right now. And, and, you know, thank you for your day. Yep. You can get your stipend from the bartender and, you know, we'll, we'll just call it quits. And it was, it was very, very astute because every place that I did land for a while, once I was there a week, um, I became the, the guy who was able to cook the food with, with the, the most attention to detail, but also with enough speed to keep up with the necessities of the day. Yeah. Historically, uh, the restaurant world changed in the 80s in New York. Gone were small little... Uh, French restaurants gone were all of these sort of hallmarks of the 50s and 60s that managed to stick around long enough. Some some modern restaurants had opened uh, in the late 70s and sort of ushered in a new wave of what food historians call grand cafes. Hmm. And the grand cafes of uh, the 80s in New York were were 
incredible. Um, and, you know, restaurants were pumping out. It was, it was a volume game. Let's put 140, 50 seats out. Let's serve really, really great high quality food. It was, it was one of the golden ages of, of restaurants in New York. And it was ideally suited for someone with my skill set because I, I may not be invaluable in a 50 seat restaurant, but in a restaurant, it's 140 seats. When all those people sit down at seven o'clock on a Saturday night, you need someone to work that pasta station who can put up 60, 70 plates in an hour. Yep. We used to joke about brunch. I used to always, I hated brunch. I, <laughs> I wound up just, you know, snorting Coke and heroin and just going into work on no sleep. Um, not proud of it. It's just how I did it. Um, but, you know, you needed someone to put out 200 plates of, of poached egg dishes in 90 minutes, two hours. Yeah. That's, that's, you do the math. It's an incredible skill set. And at the you same time, you could do it I, very, very well and do it very, very fast. Yeah, and I, was, yeah. I was feeling from the place, and it was the early days of the MCR 2160 machine, and it had a manager's key. And of course, I knew where the extra ones were and stole one. So I could go in and make a little deal with the bartender with the register. Uh, so that he was selling drinks that came up as a no sale on the machine. And he would just put that, that cash in a separate cup. And then I would give him a portion of it. And he would, I was running a little, you know, Scam. operation yep. Yep. in there and going out in, you know, the, I, I, I can make the, the, you know, the fun part of it was going out to see incredible music and great after hours clubs in the late seventies and eighties in the heyday of New York city nightlife. And that was true. Yep. Uh, but by the same token, I was also degrading myself. I was doing things and crossing lines. I never thought that I would. Uh, I was living in, in inhumane conditions uh, with people who were really scary. Um, um, so, you know, the, the, the awful part uh, of all of this is this, you know, duality that exists for the addict or alcoholic at a certain point before they become um you know beyond human aid we're at that point where we're hyper responsible hyper irresponsible so i was i was succeeding in work and making a good name for myself in the restaurant business and it, but i also like wouldn't show up for two or three days you know and i would just go on these blackout benders and at the times that you know i remember at high school parties people would say oh my god you were so funny last night but in the mid 80s, it was like, oh, my God, do you remember what you did last night? You were <laughs> awful. Hmm. And then it turned into I can't be around you. Uh. And as an addict, an alcoholic. With with my mindset, I went from that place where I lied. Hey, I'm not there's nothing going on with me. I'm so sorry. Last night, I must have just been drinking on an empty stomach to uh, up yours. I don't care. You know, yeah. and you just didn't care what happened to relationships and jobs because the the drug or the bottle became my everything. And it was the decision through which everything passed. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 
314-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And I stopped being of, of life. And I eventually lost all my job, lost all my friends. Uh, my parents thought I was dead. I was homeless and living in an abandoned building on Sullivan Street in New York City, a very swanky address, by the way, today, <laughs> um, but not so swanky back then. And after a year of being homeless and stealing on the streets to support myself and, and really, really debasing, my, I, I was, I was um, uh, rolling bums outside of, uh, rolling customers who were drunk outside of uh, nightclubs in, in alleys where bums were drinking. Uh, I was one of the bums. Uh, you know, I, I, I knew in restaurants how to go in and steal food. I, I knew a couple buildings, doorman buildings in New York and how to get into the back elevator door. I was, I was a user of people and taker of things. I stole purses off of park benches. It was horrific. And at one point, you know, lying in this abandoned building that I was sharing with these guys on a bottle gang that I met the night that I got evicted. There's a sheriff of New York. Uh, he does evictions. Mm-hmm. This is the main job. Uh, I was evicted and I, I just wanted to drink myself to death. I didn't want to live any longer. I had no desire. I felt I was a failure. And I checked into a flop house hotel called the San Pedro that no longer exists. Uh, and, uh, you know, paid for four or five days using money that I had gotten from some hot jewelry um, that I had stolen from one of my godparents and, and just tried to drink myself to death woke up uh, and uh, I wasn't dead Mm. and piecing it together. I think it was the morning of day four, um, you know, with some help of some friends, I've been able to to figure out sort of how it all happened. And uh, I, I did something I'd never done before in my entire life. I plugged the phone back into the wall called one of my best friends and asked him for help. And um, I had, I had never done that. I thought I knew everything. I never asked a person. I never said the words. I don't know in the first 30 years of my life. Wow. If if you, if you asked me how to rebuild a motorcycle, I'd say, great, let's start. Mm -hmm. But I would never tell you I've never done it before. or I don't know how I might need some help. (laughs) <laughs> I was Mr. No, I knew everything. And all of my best thinking uh, only got me into trouble, the worst kind of trouble. Um, and there I was uh, calling my friend and asking for help. It was that, I mean, it, it, I woke up, I came to, I didn't really wake up. I came to 
And that ACE bandage of tension, that anxiety that had been around my chest my entire life just wasn't there. Hmm. It just wasn't there. And it returned 10 minutes later. Hmm. uh, And I tried to talk my friend out of all the solutions that he had for me. Um, Stole from him, drank his booze. But ultimately, two days after I called him, walked into uh, an intervention and that was the, the late afternoon of the 28th of January, uh, 1992. And I've been sober ever since. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. You know, well done on 30 years of sobriety because it's, it's not easy and well done you. Now, your whole, your whole hit, your whole, um, background as a tel- uh, like a celebrity chef that came after you got clean and sober? Yeah, the uh, I mean, when I was cooking in New York City, nobody, you know, the, that that whole thing didn't exist. Uh, Food Network didn't exist. Uh, you know, there was Julia Child and Jacques Pepin on TV and, you know, a handful of others. Uh, but new, uh, the world wasn't well, America wasn't in its romantic relationship with food. Uh, at that point. You um, were, but we weren't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so, you know, eventually I was, I was here, you know, I opened a restaurant, I became very successful as uh, a chef and quasi restaurant owner here in the Twin Cities um, and uh, did a whole bunch of food things. And, and of course, all of a sudden, you know, the, the local news stations start, Hey, it's Saturday let's ask a local chef to come down and do a food demo. Mm -hmm. And I went and I did one and they were all shocked. And the producer came up to me after the, the demo was over and they, they said, Hey, can you come back next week? And there there was something weird. Mm -hmm. weird. (laughs) And, and I said, I, please, I just have to ask is, was everything okay? I mean, just all of a sudden you guys just all sort of bum rushed me. They're like, well, actually, we've done this every Saturday now for like, uh, you know, six months and you're the first person who ever like sort of spoke coherently and had a finished dish on time and backups and a swap. And, you know, I mean, they didn't have a, they had like two hot plates, right? Yeah. I just, I, I just had an affinity uh, for it. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so I became a regular there. Then I started being a regular on HGT, two HGTV shows that were shot here in the Twin Cities Rebecca's Garden in the summertime and typical Mary Ellen in the wintertime both hired me to be their in-house chef. Okay. Uh, where I would do regular appearances. You know, it was a garden show that uh, Rebecca Coles did. So, of course, you know, once a week, you know, I think it was a three-time-a-week show or something. You'd be like, okay, we pulled all the egg. Now, what do we do with all this eggplant? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the same thing on typical Mary Ellen. And, you know, then I sort of saw you know, Food Network premiered. And I sort of saw, I've always been very, one of my superpowers is sort of seeing things happen a couple years before uh, they, they actually do. And one of the things that I saw was the door was open for, for talented people in the food television space. Yep. But I also saw those doors closing at, at mm. a certain point. It's finite. You're just not going to have that much opportunity. Right. And uh, so I started pitching myself to different places and I decided I didn't want to be one of many on the Food Network. I wanted to be one of what I thought was one on the Travel Channel. I love travel and food. I wanted to take people on journeys 
and see the things that I had seen traveling with my parents, mostly my father and explore culture through food. Yep. And so I put together this pitch and Travel Channel went for it. And I didn't know at the same time that they were hiring uh, a guy away from Food Network named Tony Bourdain. Uh, uh, yes. He had a show on Food Network called uh, uh, Chef's Journey or uh, Cook's Journey. And um, th this the head of Travel Channel was very smart man. He said, I'm going to put these guys on on the same night and have that be a, a travel exploration food evening for people. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the Travel Channel, when I joined it, was uh, Samantha Brown and then a hundred shows that were called like World's Best Bathrooms, uh, oh. World's Best Beaches, <laughs> uh, World's Best Vacations, and you know, all unhosted, cheap, yeah. acquired footage shows. Yeah. And um, Tony's show wound up premiering about, oh, nine, 10 months before mine. So he was shooting season two of what was No Reservations when I was shooting season one of Bizarre Foods. And they put us on the same night. And uh, I guess you could say the rest is uh, history. history. Yeah. Within a, within a year, they moved me on to Tuesday. Tony kept Monday. I kept Tuesday. They put our reruns underneath us. Then they had two nights uh, with big hit shows. Mm -hmm. And I, I never imagined, you know, I, I was, I tried for years to sell a television show. But <laughs> to, to, to sell one is a miracle to have an audience like it is even more rarefied air yep. uh, for it to go on for 12 years um, and have all its own spinoffs, delicious destinations, bizarre world, all the, all that stuff. And to make hundreds and hundreds, I mean, nearly a thousand hours or more of television uh, for that network over a 12 year period before they changed to become a ghost and paranormal network uh, <laughs> is the greatest honor and privilege of my lifetime. I'm, I'm still stunned just saying those words. That, <laughs> that was actually me that did that. It's, it's crazy. Wow. Great accomplishments and great. I, and I like it because I hope the people listening can see that, you know, not only can you come back from drug and alcohol addiction, but you can make a huge success of yourself. You know, it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be a death knell, you know? Oh, I, you can... I would double down on that. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, look, I'm, you know, I, I celebrated my 30th anniversary in January. Um, there is nothing uh, that I do that doesn't get filtered through. And, and by the way, it, 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 I'm not successful at everything. You know, I, I, there are, parts of my life that are still extreme works in progress. Uh, recovery in some senses has come to every place in my life, but some more solidly than others, you know? Um, but I use the principles that I learned the first 10, 12 months that I was sober in everything that I do. I don't do it always successfully, but I have a, you know, as, as the literature says, I have a design for living that works and it was freely given to me. Uh, you know, I, I still have a sponsor. I still go to meetings. I, I sponsor other people in my fellowship and the 12 step group that I regularly attend. Um, I, you know, still hang out with, you know, cronies. I, I go to men's meetings, 
I, I do all the stuff that um, has kept me healthy. It's my medicine. If I don't take my medicine on a regular basis, I can get sick. And I, I can assure people, having stuck around for as long as I have, uh, people recover, you know, especially in, in different programs, what I call one, two, three. They, they realize, they admit they have a problem, uh, you know, of body, body, mind, and spirit, and they mm-hmm. can't control it. And then mm-hmm. in, in two, um, they realize that there is a, a power that can help them, whether that's the group, the book, the trees, nature, whatever, there's something other than themselves. Yep. And that's the important thing, I think, in recovery is, is realizing that, you know, your own best thinking got you into this horrific jam, and you better do it someone else's way. And then, you know, three, we, we accept this design for living and we accept that there is a, a power greater than ourselves. It's where yep. that phrase higher power comes from. And yep. it can be whatever you want. Some yep. people call it God. Some people call it the sunset. Some people call it their morning dog walk, call it whatever you want, but something other than yourself uh, needs to be in charge. And, you know, all those years when I wasn't asking questions, when I was, wasn't saying the words, I don't know, um, was when it was me running. I was, I was the higher power. Right. Can't be your own higher power. So you've, you come into this thing, one, two, three, but I I know how you leave and, and, and return to that horrific, you know, sixth, you know, circle of Dante's Inferno. You, you slide out three, two, one, you lose that relationship with something bigger than yourself. You take back your own ego. You, you start acting on it, uh, you know, in two, and then in one, you physically pick up again. So, you know, you come in one, two, three, you slide out three, two, one. And I've just, you know, I apply, you look bizarre foods. I'll, I'll give you a great, have you ever seen the program? I, it, maybe just bits of it. I don't think it's I mean, I traveled around the world and, you know, you could say it's a, a show about a fat white guy that goes around the world and eats bugs. Yeah. I was uh, going to say, is, I have seen you eat bugs, which is fine for people who needed that piece of entertainment. <laughs> um, but in showing people that one man's weird is another man's wonderful in exploring cultures uh, in as many countries as we did broadcast in 170 some odd countries as it was, and still is, um, it is a testament to acceptance, tolerance, and understanding of people who speak a different language, worship a different deity, love a different gender, have a different color skin, and so on and so on and so on. And eat bizarre food. Well, along the way, that was, I I would have made, (laughs) the hook could have been a, 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 hardware store for all I care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it yeah. just so happened that they went for the food thing. Um, but I wanted to show the world that we had more in common uh, than we had things that separated us. It seemed yeah. to be that we were increasingly defining ourselves by the things that separated us. Now, all of those principles, I did not learn in restaurants or in making the show. I learned them the first couple of years that I was getting sober. Yep. In the rooms that I cleaned up in, that's what they were talking about. Interesting. Being patient, tolerant, understanding with other people, treating everybody like the newcomer in the fellowship, thinking not of yourself, but of others, seeking to understand rather than be understood. 
um, increasing the amount of love in the world and decreasing the amount of uh, malevolence and Hate. discord. Yeah, these were all things uh, acceptance that we talked about in in recovery the first two years, and I just took those things and applied it to a piece of my television show um, because I thought and that's it was why important. you were successful. Well, I, in my opinion, that's why you were successful because that's well, a message. universal yeah. truths. I mean, there yes, were other sets yes. of universal truths I could, you know. But the yep. the fact of the matter is, is that that's how that's how you know powerfully uh, influenced by my early recovery uh, I was that I I actually thought it would be fascinating to put some of that DNA into the show. And, and I do it in, in every, all the shows that I've done since. I think that's huge. I think that's not only huge and, and such a great example of how successful you are, but it's also a great message that others can take away. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, thanks. You know, it's the, you said before, it's, you know, some of us shine up uh, a little brighter than others and we get to be public people and um, I know, you know, newcomers in, in my groups, when they come in, you know, really couldn't care less. Um, the, the message that I always try to tell people is that, you know, if you put one foot in front of the other and start to do what the group's conscience is for newcomers, um, and you use the wisdom of generations and generations of recovering people, um, then chances are, if you follow that advice, you too will stay clean and sober. I, I've, I've never seen anyone want it and do all the work and not be sober. I've never heard someone, you know, come back from 10 years of sobriety followed by a relapse and say, you know, I kept going to meetings and kept doing all the work, but the booze just wound up in my mouth. Never heard it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's always people that stop taking their medicine, um, which for me ultimately is service. Uh, I learned above all other things, service to other people is exactly uh, the best way that I can practice every aspect of the program at the exact same time. And uh, I see a ton of service work to this day. Um, It is the cornerstone of of my life. It's the cornerstone of my recovery. Uh, It's it's how I run everything in my in my work. Uh, It is a certain percentage of everything is about service and doing the next right thing. And it is it's put everything on the same basis. Now, some never put into that position to do that. I was lucky and got given that platform. I'm completely blessed. I have no I'm no different than any other you know, street addict, alcoholic, stealing purses off the backs of benches. I don't know why I got to, you know, I, I don't question it, but, you know, I, I'm grateful and humbled by it every day that I get to do what I do at a public level. However, I, I have hundreds of people that I know that I go to meetings with, whether they're a year sober or 30 years sober, or my friends who are 40 and 50 years sober, who would say anything other than if you put one foot in front of the other in recovery and don't drink one day at a time, incredible, miraculous things happen with your life. The promises come true. You do get contentment. You do get uh, the peace of mind that you never had. You do get 
the alcohol or, or, or drug problem relieved as if you hadn't worked for it, despite all the work you put in. Mm-hmm. Um, it is rather miraculous. And there is, there, there are so many ways to recover. Um, my way is just my own experience, right. you know, and I did it with 12 step meetings and, and treatment to kick it off. I know lots of friends who've done it differently. All that yep. matters, all that matters is that you don't use and, and you become the person that is of most usefulness to the world around you. That's huge. I mean, that's huge, Andrew. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I know you're a busy dude. You're a celebrity chef. And I appreciate you being willing to talk to us today and share your story. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it very, very much. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. Some great messages from Andrew Zimmern, who might have, I don't, I sometimes don't know who's listening. I don't know if you're an addict. I don't know if you are um, friends and family of an addict, but let's face it, his life got about as bad as it can get. And he definitely broke all the rules of his moral code, but he came back from that. And in fact, in fact, he turned it all around and is now hugely successful on the Food Network. Thank you so much for listening. I always like to say, you know, if he can do it, you can do it. Your loved one can do it. But you have to reach out. You have to take that first step. And if you have a friend or a family member who's an addict, it's, it's as important to you as it is to them to ask for help. There's help available. There are interventionists. There are mentoring websites who will help you. Just reach out. That's the first step. And I understand that it's the hardest. So thank you so much for listening. Excuse me. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.